You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their work here on UC Berkeley campus. Today, I'm joined by integrative biologist Dwight Springthorpe, and uh, he's in the field of biomechanics. So thanks for coming today, Dwight. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Yeah. And to start off by telling us what year you are. So I'm in my third year, uh, which means that I've passed my quals, and I'm now trying to uh, get to the bulk of my thesis and uh, finish up. And That sounds good. What is biomechanics? I mean, I know what mechanics are. Biomechanics is most broadly the science of how organisms move. Uh, but more than that, it's how an animal's anatomy, physiology, neurobiology, and the properties of the environment all come together to give an animal the capabilities that we observe. Okay. So biomechanics is basically understanding how an animal or a plant or an organism moves in general and how they use their body to accomplish things? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's that's correct. Your control strategy or how you actually activate your muscles is going to be dependent on the mechanical properties, right? And if you have real long legs, then you might be a, a good long-distance runner, but you might not be able to change direction as quickly. So a really good example would be, say, in cockroaches. Uh, you know, these, these are really small little animals and that they run really quickly. If they were scaled up to the size of a human being or something, they'd be running about as fast as a car would drive on the highway. But these and these animals are running with their legs and and they're missing steps sometimes. You know, they'll they'll step on a piece that moves or um, you know, get into some gravel or sand where the traction changes suddenly. And they can react rather than having to think about it like you or I would. You know, if we miss a step, then we think about it, we correct, you know, we stumble. Uh, instead, these animals are able to use sort of the mechanics of their legs to compensate without having to think about it. Essentially, their legs are tuned in just such a way that they're able to ignore a, a whole bunch of different kinds of perturbation, all without having to think about it. Is this because cockroaches can't think? No, they can think. Uh, if you have a sufficiently large perturbation, then they will correct. They'll uh, they'll change the way that they're running. They'll you know they'll stumble just like you or I might. But we find that especially for animals with really high stride frequencies, like uh, like these cockroaches, you know they're running at you know tens of steps per second. They're able to ignore a lot of it, which makes their lives easier. Then you can think that they're able to perform a much broader range of tasks or have a broader range of capabilities without having to have a bigger brain. So this is just another reason that cockroaches are going to be like post-apocalyptic survivors hanging out with the Twinkies. They've been around for a long, long time, and I expect that they'll be around for a long time to come. Very cool. Speaking of being around for a while, where where do you come from? You have a background in physics, I know. Yeah. So uh, I did a Bachelor's of Science in Physics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And that's where you're from, North Carolina? Yep, from North Carolina. There I studied a bunch of different things. It was a fairly standard physics major, did some astronomy, uh, you know, studied a bunch of different applied topics, a fair amount of lab work. They have a really good program there for getting undergrads interested in research and involved uh, in research. And um, then I stayed there to do a, a master's in biomedical engineering, where I did a few different things, including um, some tissue, uh, sorry, tissue engineering. Also looked into manufacturing biofuels uh, using algae. And then um, I, my master's thesis was actually on designing scientific instrumentation, where I was working in a biomechanics lab. 
I was working Ty Hedrick's lab there, and he studies flight biomechanics, mostly in uh, moths. So it's a large, you know, fairly large moth about the size of a hummingbird, but they're really good at hovering and they can fly around in these low light conditions. And uh, they're very, very good at flying in unpredictable environments that you would expect when you're a fairly small animal flying next to all these flowers and bushes and things. And so one of the things we wanted to to study was how they're actually activating their flight muscles because, you know, they sort of have a rhythmic pattern that goes over and over, that goes with each wing beat. And um, we wanted to kind of understand how that pattern was subtly changing in response to different perturbations. And one of the things we needed to do was to get this information from animals that are actually flying freely because you can you can tether them you can you can put electrodes in their muscles and record from them just like you would any other animal uh, but if you put them on a on the end of a stick or something so that you can use more conventional larger scale uh, recording apparatuses the animals aren't really behaving freely so you get behaviors that you wouldn't really expect to see during normal free flying behavior that's because they're on the end of a stick exactly uh, it's exactly what you would expect. I mean, you can do some great work with these animals on the uh, on the ends of these sticks. What does uh, that mean? Can you just? I have just a really weird image in my head. What when you say is it literally just on the end of a stick? Yes, quite literally. There is a usually some kind of, of small metal or wooden rod, and it's affixed to the top of the animal's thorax. So that's the middle part right behind the head, uh, so that the animal is sort of fixed in space. They're able to move their wings quite freely and you know their legs aren't touching anything so they think they're flying then the moth on a stick part <laughs> it's fine it doesn't it doesn't hurt the moth like it's it's fine the moths have no problem with it okay yeah um, like it, it doesn't hurt the moths and you know there's no permanent damage of any kind but you're missing a lot of that feedback loop that you would expect because they're not they're not feeling the wind when they try to turn they're not always feeling that it turns and um you know if you don't have sort of a virtual reality environment for these for these moths, then you'll find that they don't see a turn either. Now, there there has been some really good work at uh, University of Washington, for instance, where they've built these uh, really cool virtual reality environments for moths, where the moth is on the stick, but as it turns, they're able to sense that torque, and then the screen that the moth is in front of actually responds, giving the moth a, a visual response that mimics what it would expect to see when turning. It was like a little video game for moths. So they've got virtual reality for moths, but I can't buy it. It's uh, <laughs> you or I would would probably not derive as much enjoyment from it as the moths because we have a you know better visual system. Right. But you know you're, you're looking usually it might look like a series of black lines on a white background to simulate a forest of vertical tree trunks and then white open space. Uh, it's fairly simple, but it's sufficient for the moths to navigate by. And this this is an issue that comes up in a lot of biology studies, the idea of captive versus wild experiments, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So like I said, one of the things that we wanted to do was to start understanding like what are real free flight behaviors looking like? What is the natural variation of these patterns of motor act, of muscle activation? And so one of the things that we built, which was actually my master's thesis, was a uh, radio telemetry system which could be carried on these these moths. So it's you know around 750 milligrams or about a third to half of the moth's body weight. They can actually carry a whole lot. Like these are three-gram moths, but they can easily consume up to a, a gram or two of nectar and then fly away. 
And when we, we put this on the animal, we were able to put the electrodes in there and transmit out the muscle activation signals to, uh, to a base station and record them simultaneously and start to understand how natural, freely behaving moths are different than some of these tethered preparations. And we were able to bring that full feedback loop together. They're able to get the sensation of turning, the visual information from turning. Everything's there. Awesome. And, you know, besides these little tiny radio telemetry devices, I, I've been in your lab. I know you guys got some crazy things going on there. There's wires and cameras. And tell me, some what are some of the equipment that you guys use in your lab, the biomechanics lab now? Sure. Uh, so we've got a whole bunch of different equipment. We have high-speed cameras. So these are cameras that are essentially video cameras, except they can record at many thousands of frames per second, which is really critical when you're trying to capture some of these really fast, fast behaviors. You know, like I said, cockroaches are running at tens of hertz. So you need many, you, you want to be able to see that in a lot of detail. We have force platforms and other ways to actually measure the forces that the animals are exerting on the environment, treadmills, uh, obstacle courses, the backpacks that I mentioned. We'll use sensor packages that are like that in our in our research. We have things to measure oxygen consumption so that we can start to, to estimate the metabolic cost of different kinds of locomotor tasks. And uh, personally, I'm using x-rays to examine um, the ghost crabs when they're burrowing. And then all of this, you can use different computer techniques to start uh, understanding these behaviors. For instance, if you have a couple different cameras recording an animal from a few different angles, you can reconstruct the 3D positions of that animal's body and appendages. And that way you can get really well-quantified data on how the animal is moving. So beyond just a description of this is the behavior, you can start talking about the actual kinematics of each appendage or of the body. And we're able to do that with the x-ray as well. So summer I'm planning to take some new data using a multi-axis x-ray system so they can get 3D reconstructions of ghost crabs as they burrow. And this really, this is a little bit of a tangent, but this really actually reminds me of that famous series of photographs from like the turn of the 19th century with the, I think it was a horse, right? And it was like the first time they'd ever been able to see that the horse's legs are all off the ground at the same time or, or something because they took still frames of the horse running uh, with the new photography technology. Yeah, exactly. That That's one very famous example where uh, if you look at paintings and things of horses uh, before they were able to take those those first photos, you'll see that people have painted or drawn the horses running in a way that horses never do. Um, but as soon as you're able to look at things with, uh, with these high-speed cameras, or in their case, you know, with basic photographic equipment, uh, it's things that your eye would never be able to perceive. Uh, and then that gives you a whole lot of new information uh, that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the talk show where I interview graduate students here at UC Berkeley about their work on campus. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by biomechanist Dwight Springthorpe in the Department of Integrative Biology here on campus in the Valley Life Sciences Building and you mentioned ghost crabs. I know that's some of the work you, you're doing right now. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, so I'm broadly interested in the idea of animal multifunctionality, which is when an animal uses the same set of appendages to perform very different tasks. So a lot of animals 
you could even say all, every animal is multifunctional to some degree. So for instance, you know, uh, when I'm walking, I can use my legs to walk over the ground and climb up stairs. So those would be sort of different tasks. If you think about a, a fly, uh, you know, they've got legs for walking and wings for flying, and that's sort of multifunctional. But where it's really most interesting is when an animal is using the exact same set of appendages for very different tasks. And the ghost crab is excellent for that. So you've got these ghost crabs, which are sort of smallish crabs living on the beach. They're about 10 centimeters to 20 centimeters leg span. And they're first, they're runners. They are the fastest land invertebrate. They're able to run up to four meters a second, which is really, really fast. If you've ever seen them on the beach, they're all up and down the the beach of the southeast coast. Uh, You'll see them at night and then they'll be gone in the blink of an eye. So they're, they're really running specialists. But at the same time, they're able to capture and manipulate prey. So they have these really cool prey capture responses where they lunge and grab things. They, they're they very dexterous, even though their claws are, are fairly simple. Like They're able to perform tasks that you or I would perform with our hands. But instead of having, you know, 10 fingers with many degrees of freedom or many joints in each hand, they, they really only have the one joint that pinches but they're able to for instance capture a prey item and then kind of flip it upside down and then i've fed them cockroaches before and i've watched them pull off the legs one by one and eat them like chicken wings and more than that they're also able to build these long complex burrows in the beach and they they use these for for shelter and for hibernation Um, you know they stay in them during the day when it's hot and these these burrows might be you know a meter a meter and a half long going, you know, up to a meter below the surface and they have a branching structure. They're really quite complex. And the animal is able to perform all these tasks with the exact same set of appendages. So they've got these these legs that, you know, if they're specialized for anything, they're specialized just for running. But yet we see that they're able to build burrows, to jump, to climb, to capture, manipulate prey, they fight with each other. You know, you're seeing a really broad range of tasks, all from a fairly simple set of appendages. Why? Why is that? Why? How can they do all that stuff? Well, that's what I want to understand. Uh, because if you if you look at a robot with you know that we have right now, a lot of them are can be really good at a single task. You know, you'll you'll see robots that are really good runners. You know, really good at say assembling a car or something, but Getting a robot to do something new or, or to sort of be multifunctional is quite challenging. And the, the animals are able to outperform robots in in a lot of ways. And by understanding what properties of the ghost crab are really enabling this multifunctionality, how how is it that this animal is able to, to do all these different tasks with uh, that same set of appendages? It could be that it's... Uh, the control system, so it's how the animal thinks about moving it. Uh, so x-ray data that I took a couple summers ago of uh, ghost crabs building burrows. So these were animals put into a sort of an artificial beach environment, and they were allowed to build a burrow while I x-rayed them. It showed that the animals are using their uh, walking or running legs to actually remove and transport the material that when they build their burrows. So their running legs are going from being these sort of spring-like running appendages to being these appendages that are inserted into the material and then contracted and then you know that removes material from the end of the burrow and then they're able to use them to make 
uh, a basket to sort of carry the material up and out of the burrow, or they can pass the sand across their bodies inside these little burrows, which really aren't much bigger than their bodies. It's a really very confined environment, and they can push that sand across their bodies and then push it with their legs. So it's the same same appendages, just used very differently. So we think that uh, a major component of animal multifunctionality is the sort of control system, so, right? the animal's brain. But at the same time, there are animals that live in the same environment as the ghost crab, so the, the mole crab, which is neither a mole nor a crab, that is a burrowing specialist. So it has a lot of the same appendages that you see on the ghost crab. But instead of being able to perform all these different tasks, it's really just good at burrowing. It's much faster at burrowing. It can go like about half a body length in a, in a second and when it burrows in its natural environment. The ghost crabs are much slower burrowers. You know, they're going, you know, a centimeter or so a minute. But the mole crabs really can't run. They can't run. They really are just burrowing specialists. But they have the sort of same appendages, same broad set of appendages, but understanding not only how those appendages are controlled in the ghost crab to, to see how the animal becomes multifunctional, but also what is it about the structure of those limbs? Because the mole crab's appendages are obviously designed for digging. They're, they're very short, very broad, so they can generate high forces. Um, so that the, the pressure to become a really good burrower probably pushed the animal out of the ability to run. Right, because it needs that really high burrowing performance to get away from the ghost crabs. Actually, their ghost crabs like to eat the mole crabs, so they were pushed out of that ability to run because they needed that performance advantage. Uh, whereas the ghost crabs have these very differently shaped limbs, so it might be a component of multifunctionality might be how you control it, but also the shape of the appendages, the number of joints you have, you know, how you use those joints. So when you say how you control it, that's some of your experiments are not just about looking at how the limbs are moving, but it's about behavior and trying to understand the behavior of the animal. Yeah, so that was the that was really the novel thing that we we found in my my first X-ray work is that people hadn't really seen how the ghost crabs burrow. There was there was some information from watching them at the front. People knew that they were sort of using their their legs and their claws to collect and transport the material, but you know, if the animal digs a burrow, then you're going to lose sight of it. You can't really see through sand. So, when we were able to use this X-ray system, we were able to we were able to see how all the appendages were moving and where the body was, and we found some really neat things. Not only is the animal using its walking legs to collect and transport material, but it's using several different strategies, kind of all at once. So it has this sort of hook and pull motion where they insert their the tips of their legs in the material and then contract them and draw the material out, but they also have this sort of repeated scratching uh, that we think they use to, to loosen material. The The way their legs move, they can't really reach above themselves. That's why the safe way to grab a crab is to come from above. You know, they can't really reach up. They can't get to you. Uh, and that would that would obviously impact their burrowing. Like if you couldn't reach up, then your burrow would sort of, you could go down and maybe straight. Uh, but we don't see that in the ghost crab burrows. Instead, they have these sort of complex and branching structures. And uh, as soon as we put the animals in the x-ray, we found that they have this sort of neat trick where they they actually are using their claws to push themselves into, like anchor themselves within the burrow. So they push with their claws and then the back of their body, their anchor, and then they're able to spin within their burrow. 
so they can they can spin 360 degrees all the way around and they'll do this while simultaneously using their legs to collect material from the end of the burrow and we think that that might also be one of these bigger ideas of multifunctionality it's not just how your legs are shaped or you know how you're you're actually activating it's this sort of synthesis of different strategies at the same time that really enable a new behavior because the animal went from sort of having these walking legs that can kind of scratch at the material, but if you add the rotation... The whirling dervish, if you will. Sure. Uh, if you add that in, suddenly the animal can reach a whole new space. Like the animal can reach you know, above itself, and it can get to all different parts of the burrow, and that lets it go around obstacles that we find in the beach, you know, control the, probably control the direction to build these, these branches that they like to have in their burrows. And that may be another big component of, of the broader idea of multifunctionality. Okay, so we've talked a lot about ghost crabs. Are you working on anything else in the lab that you want to talk about? Uh, I don't, but my lab mates uh, are working on a number of different things. One really good example of how the shape of an animal contributes to its capabilities is this thing that a postdoc, Chin Lee, in our lab has found. He was running cockroaches through this field of sort of artificial grass. It was paper cut into a sort of a grass shape. And he noticed that the cockroaches would would often make it through this pretty difficult obstacle. And, and they would do so as they ran through, they would turn on their side and, and sort of like sidle through the grass. And he re- looked at it and he's like, there's something about the shape that is doing this. Because the, these cockroaches have this large sort of shield or rounded shield shape above their head. And as they were running through the grass, it like turns them on its side and they can sort of go through. And that's, that's really neat because it's a passive structure that gives them a new set of capabilities. They don't have to think about how to turn themselves and get through the grass. Instead, as they just run full speed through the grass, the way they're shaped naturally funnels them into this configuration that lets them move through this obstacle. And so one thing that we were able to to do is actually uh, implement that on a robot. So we have these little robotic models that run a lot like a cockroach, and they were running through grass, and they would get stuck all the time. But as soon as we put a shell, you know, sort of an almond-shaped shell over that robot that sort of resembled the, the shape of the cockroach's sort of shield that's over its head, uh, the robot naturally turned on its side, too, and went through the same obstacle. Very cool. So, and... There's a word for this, actually, like biomimetics, right? That's that's a real word? We would say bioinspiration. Okay. Well, can you, for either of those terms, can you define it for the audience? Sure. So I would say that biomimetics is the idea of copying the form of nature. And often it's, it's a good idea because if you make something that's shaped like an animal, then it may have the capabilities that that animal has. But we try to go for a deeper understanding of what the animals are doing. So we try to really understand the fundamental principles that are enabling an animal's capabilities. So it's not just, oh, let's make this robot look like the animal, but it's let's study the animal until we have a good working theory of why this animal's shape is giving it these capabilities and then take the core principle of that and apply that to the robot. And that's what we call bioinspiration, understanding the core principles and then applying them. Uh, And that's we think that's a better way to go because animals are really they're not optimized for a specific task they're doing a lot of things so a cockroach is 
you know, yeah, it's running through grass. It's trying to get away from predators, but it's also trying to find mates. It's trying to collect food. It's trying to keep itself warm and dry. And, you know, it could be that the shield that we saw there served one of those purposes. It could be that that shield was just really attractive to uh, to lady cockroaches. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of bio-inspiration is we think the better way to go because you understand more of the fundamental principles. And so you're able to take out some of the other things that the cockroach is having to do. Because we don't want a robot that is very attractive to lady cockroaches. That's not helpful for us. So we want to understand just what's contributing to the feature that we're interested in and then apply that rather than just making the robot look like a cockroach. And you said that's not helpful for for you. What exactly are you trying to do? Why build a robot? What's the point of all this? Sure. So at least in our lab, we're really interested in translating what we learn about animals into new technologies or something. I mean, we're, we're doing basic research. It's all fundamental scientific research on how animals move. But if you look at animals compared to robots, even robots that are directly inspired by that animal, you'll find that the animals are really outperforming the robots in almost every way. You know, they're more robust, they can handle broader sets of obstacles, you know, they're faster. And by understanding the principles that allow animals to do this, we think that we can really improve robotics technologies. So we can, for instance, inspire robots that are able to run through grass or handle rough terrain better. Or, you know, if you wanted to apply my work, then you would, you might be able to build a robot that is much more multifunctional. This could see application, you know, well beyond robots as well. You could see this being used to design better prosthetics. Biomechanics at the cellular level could even be, say, the transport of molecules throughout the cells or throughout the body. And so by understanding biomechanics at many different levels, you might even coming up with improvements to drug delivery. So are you going to build things forever? Is that really where your your passion lies? I do really enjoy building things. So I've been building these sensor packages for the animals. I've built several different generations of them, all using this really nice open source architecture. So I'm hoping that not only will it be useful in our lab, learning new things about the animals we study, but, you know, it might also be useful for any other labs that are looking at um, animal motion or, you know, need a sort of wireless sensor package or data acquisition system. You guys hear that? Dwight Sprinklerp here with his miniature data sensing packages. Yeah. Yeah, no. So you're building things. You could be doing that forever. What? Let's just talk for a minute about what other students can do to become a builder like yourself or to understand the fundamentals of, you know, mechanics and animals or any of the interesting things that you've worked on. Sure. So um, the first one, I really got into building things from a very young age. I was playing a lot with, you know, even Legos, things like that. Uh, we, we know you're still playing with Legos. I please. heard you have Legos in your lab. <laughs> uh, please, they're, they're chins. And, and my Legos are in my mother's basement. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, but a lot of it is just learning by doing. I mean, I picked up some of the principles of building things. When I was doing my undergraduate degree in physics and when I was doing my master's in, in biomedical engineering, but a huge component of the ability to, to build something new is really 
experience and just trying things. It's a fundamentally creative process, which I really enjoy. Uh, you know, when you're when you're building a say a robotic model that you're going to use to start understanding the principles of animal locomotion, it's fundamentally creative. You have to kind of look at what you want to build, and then there's sort of a broad class of things that you shouldn't do. Right? You probably shouldn't connect the battery backwards, for instance. And uh, and there's a bunch of things that you probably should do, right? So there's good practices in different parts of engineering. But outside of those bounds, there's a bunch of things, like a bunch of different ways to solve the same problem. And I really enjoy that iterative process of, well, let's try it this way, and then you know, see how that works and then try a few different things and go back and forth. And as you do that, you learn what works and what doesn't work. And then that's experience that you keep with you and that you can use to apply uh, to problems in the future. And eventually you have this huge set of experiences so that you can, when you're approaching to a new problem, you can almost, almost right away rule out different ideas. And I see this, you know, a lot of undergrad classes don't teach this, uh, but there are a number of, of classes that do design programs are really good. Uh, working in a lab was really good, uh, especially in my undergrad and master's programs. Uh, you know, we needed new devices to to test things, you know, to under, to do different scientific problems. Like the fundamental goal was not to build something new, but rather to build something new that enabled a new scientific discovery. But in having kind of a different project every week, like, okay, let's build you know, a camera system. Now let's build, you know, a radio control system. Let's build a bunch of different things. You can get a really broad set of experiences. If someone was interested in really learning how to build new things, I would say that, you know, working in a in a laboratory is a great way to do it. You know, get involved as an undergrad or, you know, as a master's student or even you know, just go to grad school. And, uh, you can really have a lot of opportunities to build different things, even though it's not a classical engineering track. You can still get a lot of the experience, and your goals will always be to make something that works. So in a lot of ways, you'll get away from sort of the, the heavy theory and move straight into how does this work in the real world. Um, I highly encourage undergrads that are interested in engineering or building things to work in labs. I know that even though we're a biology lab, all the graduate students in my lab now have backgrounds in physics or engineering, and many of the undergrads that we take come from either engineering programs or, you know, bioengineering programs. We, we have biologists, too. We, have a, we like to have a, a broad group of people or a broad set of experiences in our lab because it's a really integrative program. Uh, but, yeah, there's no reason why if you're an electrical engineer you can't try working in a, in a biology lab. So I think there's one question that everyone out there has for you. Are there any robot wars on campus that we can go to? <laughs> oh, let me think. Oh, you've got a serious answer for this. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> there I, should be. I, yeah, there, there should be. Our robots don't often fight each other. Usually they're, they're hand-built, so they are quite precious to us. We <laughs> care for them better than... Uh, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but yeah, but the robot wars. Well, it would it would be interesting. Uh, we have robot races sometimes. So our ro- sometimes if we're testing different designs, the robots will will race against e- each other, and we'll we can start understanding you know what aspects of this or of this robot's shape are contributing to 
the differences in performance. Okay. Well, if we ever get this robot war thing going, you know, get Memorial Stadium opened up, I can do the live broadcast. We got <laughs> we got it hooked up. Um, well, we're just about out of time here. So do you have any last words for the audience? Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would say that basic research is really important because you never know where the next new technological breakthrough is going to come from. Biological research especially, there's there's so many animals out there and there's so many animals with different capabilities that that we don't understand. We don't understand how they work or how the animal is, is able to maintain the performance that it does. And I really think that it's important to support basic research because that basic research can translate into new technologies that you never expected. From our lab a few years ago, people were looking at, at gecko feet they were looking at just how geckos are able to climb up the wall. And so you might say that that would translate into a robot that could climb up the wall, and it did. But more interestingly, it also translated into a new adhesive technology that's being that can be used for bandages. You know, they're thinking about this as a as a way to make these bandages that don't cause any pain when they're removed. So this could be great for say burn patients or, you know, anyone who just doesn't like having a Band-Aid ripped off. And all of this came from basic research where there was never a set goal to say, we're going to build this bandage. Well, I know you can hold it. a child to the wall. Yes. I've seen that video. Yeah, yeah. My advisor has uh, a video of his, of his uh, former grad student taking this grad student's firstborn child and attaching it to a harness connected to a, you know, a piece of this adhesive and is able to hold the kid up. And that's... That's trust. Yeah. Um, that's yeah, yeah. That's belief in your work, huh? Yeah. yeah. And but all that comes from basic research. Uh, you know, you've got this, the idea that we're going to do fundamental research because it is sort of its own reward, but really it should be supported because it can translate in so many different ways, in ways you didn't expect. And I, you know, really encourage people, e- even if you're not on a scientific track. Even if you want to go into industry or a non-scientific career, um, to get involved in research so that they can kind of understand that science is is a fundamentally creative process, and there's a lot of room for people of, of all different experiences in science, and that that work can translate to really unexpected things that benefit everybody, even those people that aren't going to go into science. Wise words from Dwight Springthorpe. Here on The Graduates, that's right, you've been listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their work here on UC Berkeley campus. My name is Tesla Munson, and again, I've been here today with integrative biologist Dwight Springthorpe. And uh, thank you again, Dwight, for being here today. Thank you so much. Yeah. And we'll be back two weeks from today with another episode of The Graduates. That's right. Join us at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, July 29th to hear from wildlife ecologist Morgan Gray. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to KALX, Berkeley.